we bring you independent voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. If you uh, value what we do, we could use your support. You can visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website, or if you run a small business or a nonprofit, consider becoming a sponsor of this program. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's our locally owned and specialty grocery store. It's open for business uh, seven days a week. Uh, the cafe is open, again, seven days a week, dine-in, carry-out, delivery. They've also got a great catering and floral service. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. And the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. Later in the program, during our farm and food segment, we will discuss bees. That's right, the little buzzy guys. You know, what exactly do they do in the winter? Do they hibernate? Do they fly south? Do they hang out in warm malls and just buzz around? Uh, yeah, they don't do that. But we've got a, a bee wizard joining us to answer that and related questions. Our main topic today is the CO2 pipelines, these carbon dioxide pipelines being proposed for the upper Midwest and actually all over the country. And there's so much to talk about, uh, but today we're going to dig into one specific area, and that's eminent domain. Uh, the, again, eminent domain could be used to build these pipelines. And uh, one Republican lawmaker's decision not to run a key eminent domain bill, he said he was going to do it, changed his mind. That change gives Democrats an incredible opportunity. We'll talk about that as well. And if you're listening to our live stream and you want to join this conversation, again, live stream is every Monday at 4 o'clock on the Fallon Forum Facebook page. If you're listening live and want to join in, text us at 515-519-6323, and we will call you back and bring you into the discussion. So um, first, uh, first though, we got to talk a little bit about the bottle bill because that is, I mean, states across the country, not all, but many, have had bottle bills on the books for decades now, some for as many as 50, 60 years. And the bottle bill was inspired as one way to begin to clean up trash. Uh, again, America has a litter problem. We've noticed that. And uh, the bottle bill is something that, in my opinion, should be expanded. Uh, we'll, and this, I'll give you my reasons. Uh, of course, there are also people who want to repeal it. Joining us for that conversation, Dennis Harbaugh. He's, um, back in the day, he was a director of the Iowa Senate Democratic Research Staff, and, and one of the areas of expertise that he developed was regarding the bottle bill. Uh, Dennis, uh, welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Ed. Good to be with you. So way back when, uh, again, many states began to tackle the litter problem, as I said, by giving people a nickel every time they brought a bottle or can back to the store where they bought it from. Now, in Iowa, Iowa was one of those states. How far back in time does Iowa's bottle bill go? Do you, do you, remember, do you remember that far back? Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, I'm giving away my age here. And <laughs> I actually remember what Iowa was like before and after the bottle bill. Ah. Um, uh, I grew up uh, on the south edge of Waterloo on a dairy farm, and our uh, gravel road ditches were literally filled uh, prior to the bottle bill with mainly beer bottles and mm. pop cans. 
and I left the state uh, the year before the bottle bill was passed in 1978. Uh, Democrats had taken control of the Iowa legislature post-Watergate, and they passed the bottle bill in 1978, and then Republican Governor uh, Robert Ray signed the bill into law. So it was a bipartisan effort. Right. And were the Republicans really. in the House and Senate who voted for it as well? Um, I don't know the votes on that, but mm-hmm. the key part was that it was signed by a Republican right, governor. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I had left the state the year before that. I came back to the state the year after that and was shocked because all those ditches that had yeah. been filled with bottles and cans were, were cleaned. They yeah, were gone. Yeah. And, and the yeah. Department of Natural Resources so, at Iowa, they did, a, um, they did a study and showed that 79% of all bottles and cans that had been in Iowa's ditches had been removed in right. one year. Wow. Yeah, even, even the one, even bottle, even bottles that had been sitting there for a while, those were also worth a uh, nickel. Exactly. So my, yeah. my, my yeah. question is, if, if a bottle or a can was worth a nickel back in 1978, what's it worth today? And why are we increasing the bottle bill, the redemption, so that it's, uh, it's, it's you know, it, it, it's commensurate with the, uh, with the changing times and the cost of living. Yeah. Well, that's, that's one of the several weaknesses uh, that have developed over the decades, really. There, there's three or four weaknesses. I wouldn't call them problems, but they're weaknesses that need to be rectified. And if you would apply a, a inflation from 1979, when the bill was first implemented, to now, you'd be talking about a deposit of over 20 cents per container. Wow. And okay. and that's part of and nobody's suggesting that or recommending that. Well, I would. State. <laughs> but it, can it, I can it, I suggest it, that it would be it might in in a perfect world it would probably be the most effective because that five cents just isn't providing enough right. incentive no. right now for people to redeem uh, as it as it did forty three years ago right. for sure. So you know we yeah uh, we buy our our uh, speaking of you being from a dairy farm we buy our milk from a local dairy. And they, mm-hmm. they, 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 they sell that, that milk in half-gallon glass jugs. And there is a, get this, $2 deposit on that glass bottle. So when you buy mm-hmm. it, you pay mm-hmm. 2 bucks extra. So there's a huge mm-hmm. incentive to return that bottle. And, you know, no doubt. I mean, that bottle, no doubt. that's what that's worth. states that have raised it from $0.05 cents to $0.10 cents have not seen any drop-off. In fact, they've sometimes, like Michigan, has seen their redemption percentages go yeah. up after 10 cents. So it, we, there is some evidence to show that if you increase the bottle deposit. But that's not the only you know weakness that we're kind of facing here with Iowa. We've, you know, back in 79, a lot of, uh, well, jumping ahead to now, you've got a lot of liquid containers, things such as bottled water, flavored tea, sports drinks, oh, energy yeah. drinks. None of those things really existed in any kind of number in 1979. And, but yet they represent an increasingly large share of what people are purchasing now. And those aren't even covered in the right. bottle bill. Okay. And of those, those type of containers, only 26% of them are getting recycled. So, why, so why, that's a problem. So we've got, to, we've got to expand the bottle bill to include those type right. of containers. Makes sense to me, but I also hear that those, those, there are those who want to repeal it outright, just want to get rid of it. Well, that... That would just be utter insanity. Um, the right now, over a billion containers are redeemed per year in Iowa. That's with a B, not with an M. One billion containers, mm. and over forty-eight billion have been redeemed by consumers in the last forty-three years. And I, I don't know about you, 
I have a hard time getting my mind wrapped around billions, but you could take those containers that have been redeemed and kept out of Iowa's landfills, ditches, and waterways due to the bottle bill, and you could stack them from here to the moon and back 11 times. Oh. That gives you an idea how what, what the Iowa's, you know, countryside and waterways uh, and land. That, that's, like that's, just I, that's just Iowa. That's just Iowa. Not including the other states. Exactly. So, um, just okay, Iowa. so you said it would be insane to repeal it, but again, we're talking about the Iowa legislature. Um, I, and I know there's talk about re repealing the bottle bill. And who's, who's behind that? Who wants to do that? Well, you know, it, it, that's where it gets, as you know, uh, things at the legislature can get tricky. Um, and you've got differing competing financial interests. Right now, the, the group that makes out like bandits with our current bottle bill are the wholesalers that actually sell containers to the grocery stores and, and the convenience stores. So we're talking about because the big guys like, like Pepsi, Coke. Well, I don't know who it is in Central Iowa. Well, I'm in, around here, it's more like Far Beverage. It's the companies okay. that actually sell ah, it directly okay. to the grocery store. Gotcha. Because in Iowa, for every unredeemed container, for example, if I buy a you know, six-pack and I don't go get my five cents back per can, hmm. that five cents per can goes directly to the pockets of the wholesalers. Right, right. So they're making about 20 to $40 million a year. They won't open their books, so nobody knows for sure. So they, so they're they're resisting any kind of change because okay. they're making out. Yeah. Then you got the groceries uh, chains that obviously don't want anything to do with it. They want to be opted out. And one of the other weaknesses that we really need to rectify is that since 1979, the the people that handle the redeemed containers at grocery stores, mm -hmm. convenience stores, and redemption centers, they're only getting one cent handling yeah. fee. So if you increase and it to most, 20, if you, if you increase you it to increase, 20, when you increase the bottle deposit yeah, right. to 10 cents, you have more money right. to pay the the people that handle it. And almost every state pays more than one yeah. cent. It's just, it hasn't kept up with inflation either. Yeah. And that's probably one of the reasons why they're just so actively lobbying yeah. against it. And you've got all these uh, lobbyist uh, organizations, representing organizations that are pretty big donors to mm. um, Republicans. So they, they're a little bit of a pickle trying to figure out yeah. how to. I don't think Republicans want to be responsible for eliminating Iowa's bottle because it's popular. There was a poll in 19, or 2017, the latest poll showed that 88 percent of Iowa voters say the bottle bill has been good for the yeah. state. It's hard. It's There's hard not to, many things yeah. that get 80 percent. Yeah. Well, yeah. What if you were to increase it to 20 cents per bottle per can, add the new bottles and cans that aren't covered in, and then pay the redemption centers a, a nickel instead of a penny uh, and, and get it out of the grocery stores? I mean, if, if people were uh, able to get 20 cents a bottle or can and could bring it to a redemption center uh, and have plenty of these redemption centers, one in every significant town, I think that would work. That that would make the grocery stores happy. People would be more incentivized to return them. Uh, and and folks who actually make some income in our neighborhood here, we have we have people who who get by by returning bottles and cans. Gosh, if their if their income increased by fourfold, that'd be a good thing. Yeah, there's there's, there's some positive to that. The, the 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 biggest challenge in that is redemption rates tend to be highest. If people don't have to make a special trip somewhere okay. gotcha. else to get redeemed, yeah, they go or that was the beauty of this of, of the, the the organization or the, the setup yeah. of this, 
everybody goes to the grocery store to get groceries. The idea is you take your right. cans back when you get groceries. There's no extra trip needed. There's no extra time needed. Right. You go back to where you purchase it. And when you take that out of the equation, it adds additional effort for people. And the other thing is the redemption centers are, are, are not really regulated, and um, they vary dramatically. Right. Uh, here in Waterloo, we have one redemption center to serve over 65,000 residents, mm. and it's a muddy pit. Oh, gosh. Okay. It's, a, it's a disaster. It's open. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes they give you four cents instead mm. of the five cents they're supposed to, <laughs> and that brings up okay. the fi- that brings up the uh, final weakness really of the bill, which is a lack of enforcement. Okay. Uh, well, you then- know the DNR rules currently uh, guide uh, and, and control the bottle bill, but the DNR says they don't have enforcement powers. Mm. And meanwhile, the AG will not enforce anything. Dennis, so I got that's a problem. Yeah, I got to run on to another conversation before we run out of time in this segment. I really thank you. Really thank you for joining us. I, I want to encourage people to uh, really contact their local yes. legislator, legislative leaders, and governor. And if you're a member of any environmental or conservation organization, right. They've been kind of dropping the ball on this, yeah. frankly, and and they need to get on on the sticker. We're we're going to see our bottle bill die, yep. and um, I, I like I said, I've seen Iowa uh, before the bottle bill, and we don't want yeah. to go back to that. Dennis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. Folks, uh, that was Dennis Harbaugh. He's the former director of the Iowa Senate uh, Democratic uh, Research Staff. I want to make sure that I reiterate what Dennis said and encourage you, whether you're in Iowa or another state. The bottle bill is a good thing. It needs to be preserved, in many cases expanded, in many cases tweaked. But don't throw this baby out with the bathwater. This is a good thing. And uh, make sure you raise your voice in support of it. I'm going to move on here to the carbon dioxide pipelines that are being proposed for the upper Midwest. Again, Iowa's total of, uh, of pipeline mileage. If they build all three of these pipelines across Iowa, we're talking about 2,000 miles of land torn up. Again, to put that in perspective, we had 350 miles of Iowa um, torn up by uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline. This would be 2,000 miles just in one state. This doesn't include the impacts in Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Illinois, and it doesn't include the states around the country being affected by these pipelines. There's plenty of reasons to be concerned about these pipelines. Uh, and one of them is eminent domain. Uh, it makes historically eminent domain is the public's ability through government to take land for a specific public purpose. And now, we, what we saw with the Dakota Access Pipeline was a tremendous uh, diversion away from that of that historic use. And so, the concern is that that new direction will be applied to these carbon dioxide pipelines. Hard to say, but if you're listening and you'd like to be a part of this conversation, just give us a shout, 515, uh, text us to 515-519-6323. And um, again, you, you text us and we'll call you right back and then we'll um, and then we'll bring you into the conversation. All right, this is Ed Fallon, folks, and we've got to take a short break and we will be right back. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, 
hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Back to the Fallon Forum. If you're listening to our live broadcast, join us by texting your name to 515-519-6323. We'll call you back and bring you into the conversation. Uh, thanks to our sponsors, including Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has cared for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page or by stopping by at their office up in Nevada, Iowa. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. If you live anywhere in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-paid basis. Contact daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Okay, to our conversation about the CO2 pipelines. Uh, so much is happening. Uh, so many concerns. Uh, climate change, obviously, again, uh, you know, the, the argument is that the CO2 pipelines are going to address the climate crisis by sequestering carbon dioxide. We could have a long conversation just about that. I'll just, I'll just say one thing. Neither Summit nor Navigator have made a commitment to not using that CO2 for enhanced oil recovery. That means, and this is, CO2 is being used for that elsewhere in the country, that means they could actually take the CO2, which they say is being sequestered, to protect the climate and use it to extract more oil. That's crazy. You've also got the situation about safety. The uh, Satarsha, Mississippi accident where uh, 49 people were sent to the hospital after a CO2 pipeline ruptured. Um, that could happen somewhere else. You've also got the issue of, of damage to uh, our soil, to, uh, compaction, um, water, tiling, that sort of thing. Uh, there are loads of impacts of what happens when a pipeline goes through your land. Check out some of the maps we've posted, um, that, sorry, that have been posted on the uh, Bold Iowa website. I should post them on the Fallon Forum site as well. Maps provided by landowners that show how much impact the pipeline has on production yields along, their, along that route. There's also the issue of, uh, of uh, the cost of these pipelines, the potential misuse of tax dollars. Eminent domain, I want to talk about that because that's a big deal. And it's not just, historically it's been a problem. And I want to, I, want to, um, I read a recent, I read a disturbing example of how eminent domain was mis misused. In this case, not by a private corporation, but by a government entity. And joining me on the phone now to talk about that is Maureen McHugh. She's the author of Birds in the Morning, Frogs at Night, Sharing Life Along the Road. Maureen, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you, Ed. Thanks for inviting me. Appreciate it. And you live out in the country, and years ago, I, I mean, the story was fascinating to me, that you suddenly discovered that a corner of your land had been condemned. 
Right, right. We just came home. There was no pre-notice. There was nothing. It was just there. It was the sign that says, okay, it's gone. And uh, we even, I don't believe we actually knew even what it was. Yeah. It, it took some calls. We found out. It was what we thought was a relatively reasonable need being expressed. However, we also were under... Uh, a lot of information saying we really didn't have enough water. And so the whole thing was very disruptive, so the very city, the, frightening. The, the nearby city wanted to condemn your property to, to be able to build some kind of a connecting system to take water from your aqu aquifer. And again, I say your aquifer, not yours specifically, but the aquifer that you and your neighbors in that rural area use to, uh, to use, uh, that's where your wells are, are, are grounded. Yeah. Yeah, and they wanted to take water from there for the city's use. Right. Okay, and, they, right. Didn't, and, and they, didn't, they didn't even tell you. They just came out and said, well, we're taking this. Yeah, there was no conversation, <laughs> none whatsoever. It just was a done deal. We just right. came home and found it. So um, they were assuming there was plenty of water to share, that they could tap into your sort of the source of your well and everything would be fine for everybody? Yeah, I mean, that was the going tale on their part. Um, we and our neighbors and everybody on that finger of the aquifer said we've all been notified that this is a relatively small amount of water. In fact, uh, the other corner, the other part of the condemned corner, the family didn't even have a well. And so for them, it didn't represent a problem because right. they so, you know, use such a small amount of water. So we were the ones who were going to be impacted by the whole process. So how, when they when they decide to come and condemn your land for a water source, uh, what happens next? Well, uh, then they dig a big well, and the engineering company begins to just pull that water out as hard and fast as they can to see how long they can maintain the flow rate and whether or not that flow rate is going to be sufficient to um, remedy the problem in the town. Meanwhile, um, there's no conversation about what's it doing to our well, but uh, we fortunately have friends who are geologists and know how this works. Right. <laughs> we, we began to learn the process, and while technically they're supposed to um, suck out the water at a, at a given rate that's continuous, they kept lowering the rate because they could see that they couldn't continue with the full amount they wanted. And we could see the rate going down right. would involve us losing our water. So why, 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 would, why, wouldn't they just, why wouldn't they just stop when they realized that they weren't going to have uh, enough uh, flow rate to justify the Well, I, the I think that's the key question. You know, who is serving whose interests um, with what kind of... Uh, justification and uh, truth to to the situation yeah. i mean the engineering company i'm sure was being paid by the amount of time and effort it put into the process <laughs> right, and, right. you know yeah. and and these are questions that as kind of what i would call naive uh homeowners don't know to ask um we just know that we have limited source of water and here was somebody going to take it so away. I, and I, and I, and we I have animals we I, have basic needs and yeah, nobody and conferred with us and, whatsoever and, and i know we didn't I, have any right I, I know i know this because i read your book but they actually drained your well <laughs> yeah 
And the, to make up for that, they provided you with a couple couple of gallon, gallon jugs yeah. of water on your doorstep. Yeah, which, yeah, uh, which, exactly. Which, that was enough for exactly. you to drink, to cook, to shower, to feed your animals, right? Right, yeah. The horse uh, could easily drink those three gallons, no problem. So, um, yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, it, it's just. Um, it's it's so inconsiderate, I and mean, you know, and again, some of these things probably happened prior to the changes that I was involved with making when I was a legislator. I mean, we made some changes in 1999, 2000. There were again changes in 07, I think, 06 as well. Um, changes that kind of brought some protections to landowners because I don't think they can get away with that today where they could just come in and not even tell you that they're going to condemn your land. So what happened though, I'm curious, what happened when they found out that there wasn't enough flow rate in your aquifer for them to justify taking that water for the town? What happened? Did they just... Nothing, nothing. They just continued. They said, we're going to continue the process until it's um, proven one way or the other. I mean, there was no conversation. And all we could do was keep track of the numbers and bug them on a daily basis about what we could see. And it was as if we were talking to a wall. So they, how, they didn't care. How long were we out of water for? <clears throat> well, we were only out of water for a few days, which, you know, That's... in modern times, we could get water at work or in town or what have you. But the idea is that there are so many uses for water and so many people claiming mm -hmm. the need uh, for water, including those people who are willing to risk everything, like in consideration of these pipelines. Yeah. Um, pipelines burst, and pipelines um, destroy water sources when mm -hmm. they burst. And this is very frightening because the demands on our water sources continue to go up, the pollution continues to go up, mm -hmm. and the end result is going to be for all the people along any of these aquifers that are, you know, close to these pipelines are going to feel what we felt, except mm. that our situation ended right. pretty okay because they eventually picked up the machines and left did they, did and they, are well recovered. Did but they uncondemn your property? <laughs> Pardon? Did they uncondemn your property? Yes, yes, they uncondemned it. Uncondemned it, okay. <laughs> It and just so turned it, back to ours. My, they my, took away the equipment and uh, cleaned up the road a little bit. A and, little bit, you know, all right, yeah. It. Did they do a good bit, job yeah. of cleaning cleaning up the road, or is just a little bit? <laughs> I would say it was just a little bit all because right. it's an unimproved road. That's what it so means. It was, you know, it was, nobody's it was, but by responsible the time when, for improving when, it. <laughs> when they left, it was more unimproved, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, for so, a while. Here, one last question about, I have two, two questions, but one, one about this situation, then a bigger question. What about the city that said it needed water and they didn't find any? Where did they go to get the water they said they needed? Yeah, I, I am so sorry that I have not followed that up uh, assiduously like I should have. But as far as I know, by rumor anyway, they got it from somewhere north and uh of town, so it may come down from an aquifer that serves North Liberty or or mm. somewhere in the Amanas or something like that. There's quite a bit of water in the yeah. Amanas, so perhaps it came from there. But um, it, my understanding is that it it really was a problem. They really did didn't need to dilute the radon that was in the mm. water. Radon is a real radon threat. is nasty. It's a second. And I, I didn't object yeah. to that. It's just that we knew we didn't have the water to give away. We had 
the water that supported our life and that of the six other families on right. our road. And right. so that so, was the point to us. Well, what about, again, I think, I, think, um, I, I don't think a, a corporation or a government could get away with exactly what they got away with, with you. Uh, I think they, they'd have to at least give you notice <laughs> and come on your land and accomplish negotiations before they would condemn it. At least we made those changes, but uh, still, eminent domain is a very powerful tool, and uh, that was a government entity wanting to use it. And now we have the precedent set years, a few years back with the Dakota Access Pipeline, where a corporation can be given the right to use eminent domain for a private purpose. And I, I'm trying to I'm trying to sort out what the mind of the utilities board is right now, and is that is that likely to be something they attempt to do? What do you think? It, I, I think it depends on who you talk to because there seems to be um, rumors floating around both ways. You know, the, the propaganda from the companies that, yes, they have lots of support. And if they have lots of support, you know, they would get it. And then um, information from others working to um, stop this boondoggle are saying they're getting lots of support and positive responses. Mm. So, I mean, I think the, the game is still up in the air, uh, how it's going to fall uh, down. But I really think we will all regret it if we allow the whole notion of eminent domain mm. to suddenly be whoever has the most money coming yeah. in and claiming well, the right to utilize whatever resources are out there. There are plenty of uh, landowners along the Dakota Access Pipeline route who signed with the uh, company who now regret it because they're seeing what it did to their soil. I mean, compaction is six to eight feet deep in some places. Uh, mm, mm. Tiles, um, in some cases, tiles are restored. In some cases, they weren't. And when your tile is not working, uh, your field is not draining and, and you're not able to get, uh, you're, you're not able to farm it like you're supposed to. And um, I'll, I'll, I shared some of these maps last week from a gentleman named Steve Rocky down in uh, Keokuk County, uh, near, near the town of Fremont. And, um, they show a very disturbing pattern. If you look at the maps, they're, um, they're, they're satellite image maps that show crop yields in these farmers' fields. And in every, in every case, in some places where you're, you know, you're getting um, uh, 75, 80 bushels along the pipeline route, you can see the, 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 the infrared indicator that you're getting five bushels an acre. And so uh, this is a huge problem. And I think some landowners who, and farmers who see that, uh, well, you know, I signed with the pipeline company. I got some money. It was okay. And now wondering, well, hey, maybe maybe it wasn't worth it. Maybe the impact of my crop yields is serious enough. Maybe the compaction is serious enough. Uh, and Rocky also has a very interesting photograph showing the uh, pipeline workers dumping topsoil into the bottom of the trench on top of the pipeline, not where it's supposed okay. to be. You know. No. So my thought is, uh, you know, maybe people will start seeing that. Uh, that it's worth standing up to these corporations that want to take their land for this reason. Um, yeah, I, it, it sounds so simple to say you just want a few feet, um, and it's quite something different when you realize what those few feet represent in terms of the equipment. And right. that was what we saw was this heavy equipment, uh, and the water was going everywhere. It really was very hard on mm. the area that was involved, and we were small potatoes. Right. <laughs> And, and yet, when you think about all these related issues that are 
you know, part of an environment that is already under threat and under increasing threat from the environment and from the uh, climate especially. So the idea of disturbing all of our uh, food-producing land, of disturbing our water resources, of eventually contributing even more to degradation of the air, water, and climate is just insane. Well, I Maureen, really hope people wake up. <laughs> well, we're, we're doing our part to help uh, we'll help support all of us who understand that we've got an issue. Maureen, I thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> thank you for having me. Right. Good luck to all of us. Thank you. Folks, we've been talking with Maureen McHugh. She's a landowner in Johnson County, actually, and uh, dealt with an interesting um, and disturbing eminent domain story years ago. And you can find that in her book called... Uh, Birds in the morning, frogs at night. Uh, I was inspired to invite her on the show after reading that. So we're going to keep the conversation going here. Uh, this is uh, Ed Fallon. We've got to take a short break, and we will be right back. Groovy Goods is your Des Moines one-stop hippie shop. Located near Drake University, we are more than just a store. Groovy Goods is about community. We're a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. You will be greeted by friendly staff, the smell of incense, the vibration of healing stones and crystals, the vibrant colors of clothing and tapestries, and an extensive herbal apothecary and metaphysical products. At Groovy Goods, everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Check us out online, groovy-goods.com, or stop in at the corner of 23rd and University in Des Moines. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Valley Forum. If you are listening to our live broadcast, you can join us by texting your name to 515-519-6323. That's 515-519-6323. We will call you back on a different different line and bring you into the conversation. Again, if you're listening on, on the radio or to our podcast and you think you might want to be a part of this conversation sometime, every Monday, 4 o'clock on the Fallon Forum Facebook page, we live stream the program and that's when we bring in callers, guests, your opinions. You can support this alternative to the Shock Jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. Check out the Fallon Forum website for details. Uh, thanks to Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations, owner Mark Clipsham knows we have to build better health for people and the planet. And the services he provides are committed to that goal. That's Architecture by Synthesis. Okay, so why do I say, uh, I, I said this earlier, why do I say that Republicans have just gifted an incredible opportunity to Democrats when it comes to this, these carbon dioxide pipelines? Here's what I mean. Representative Bobby Kaufman here in Iowa 
Uh, two weeks ago, he said he was going to introduce a bill to require corporations that wanted to build CO2 pipelines to sign up 70% of the landowners voluntarily before the state would allow that corporation to use eminent domain. In other words, you know, the corporations out there can try to convince landowners to sign up, sign up, we'll, we'll pay you, give us an easement, let us cut through your property, let us tear up your soil, we'll pay you, some for the uh, crop damage as well. And the idea was that, okay, the company has to show that it can get 70%, a large chunk of people to sign up before they get to use eminent domain. Because right now the company's saying, no, we really don't want to use eminent domain. But uh, every indication is there's enough people who don't like this that they're going to have to. And so the question is, should they and will they be allowed? So Kaufman backed away from that idea, which I was, I was disappointed to see that. According to the, Iowa, the uh, Radio Iowa story, and I quote, rushing eminent domain changes through the legislature this year would send the wrong message to businesses and to the landowners who've already signed easements for carbon pipelines and landowners still considering contracts. My thought is that, okay, if Republicans aren't going to take this bull by the horns and do something with it, maybe Democrats will. I want to talk more about that, but first I want to go to a phone call from uh, George. Hello, George. Welcome to the uh, program. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. You are, I believe, a landowner in Floyd County, I believe, on the pathway of one of the two pipelines. That's correct. I'm on the uh, Summit Pipeline. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, uh, I think uh, this... Uh, uh, well, let, let's just go through the process. Uh, there were public meetings held by both uh, Summit and Navigator. They've been completed. They had to be held before landowners could be contacted. Right. Uh, I was contacted by a representative of a, a real estate company that is working with uh, Summit. Uh, I was offered a, a contract, a 30-page uh, contract, and uh, asked to sign it voluntarily. And if I did decide it voluntarily, it was implied that uh, domain, eminent domain would be uh, applied for. Yeah. And uh, there's all kinds of provisions in the agreement. I would receive an easement fee uh, up front, and uh, I would receive uh, crop damage compensation on a declining basis for the first three years. And uh, that would be it. Uh, I have a pattern tiled farm and uh, I spent a lot of money improving the drainage and so on. I think any construction would reduce the farmability, profitability, and resale rental value of that property and um, uh, don't intend to sign. The other consideration I think is that uh, this is um, a pipeline and navigator and ADM Wolf, the three pipelines that are under consideration right now, uh, the whole idea is to capture federal carbon and tax credits. Right. And that's very lucrative. And they'll yeah. use those credits, public monies, to construct, maintain, operate, and return profit to investors, which is going to right. be huge. Well, I think that's the only reason you've got three different companies competing to build pipelines in Iowa. There is a bunch of federal money, a bunch of uh, taxpayer dollars that make this a lucrative project. You know, I, I don't see, none of the evidence I see about, about uh, 
this this type of carbon sequestration make any sense without a lot of public money involved. And for what I well, for what I see, none of them make sense from a climate point of view either. These don't really address the underlying problem that we have a lot of CO2 up in the atmosphere right now, and that's what needs to be sequestered. But to the issue of eminent domain, um, I, I think... Let me go back a little bit. Okay. Uh, some of the Navigator Pipelines, they're planned for separate facilities in 15 of the same Iowa counties, and including Floyd and Hardin counties where I own land. Uh, I have a Hardin County friend with both company pipelines on his farm near Iowa Falls. Wow. And I also have uh, a friend where the Navigator and Summit pipelines will cross at 90 degrees just west of Charles City, wow. which is going to raise some interesting easement and liability issues. Right. Uh, I guess the, the bottom line is, shouldn't there be a master plan in the state to establish a planned pipeline network and avoid duplication? Yeah, if you, this is such you, a good you, idea. You would think so, because anytime, for example, if, if, if eminent domain is used for a truly public purpose, you've got, you don't have, you don't have, you don't have competing roads. <laughs> There's all a plan for how to put the roads in. There's all a plan for how to put the water lines in, the power lines. Yeah, you name it. There's always an overreaching plan because these are public, uh, public quote improvements. So, yeah, it's. Um, I, I'm curious. So, what are you, what are you hearing from your neighbors? Uh, are other farmers and landowners in your area also concerned about this? Well, I would say yes, they are definitely the ones that have been contacted and. Uh, the majority of them I've spoken to, I, I know of very few uh, that have voluntarily signed. Uh, there is a growing group of farmers across the state who have submitted objections to the Iowa Utilities Board and also about half of the supervisor groups in the counties impacted have mm -hmm. sent objections. I think there's two cities that have submitted objections, and so on. Right. And um, uh, there is also a network of people who have submitted comments that meet weekly via Zoom, and we have contracted with a uh, lawyer with experience uh, with pipelines. Right. And uh, and are, do, you, do you hear from people who are signing up and saying, hey, you know, it's a done deal, or I need the money, and I'm just going to sign up for it? That's uh, the biggest reason uh, they say it's a done deal. Uh, they've got all the political uh, pieces in place, and uh, I just want to negotiate the best deal I can. That's one argument. I think another thing is a lot of the landowners that have been contacted are older. They're off the farm. Well, uh, I used to be a Iowa State Extension crop specialist, and every year, Iowa State, every five years, Iowa State comes out with a five-year land ownership and tenure survey. Right. And a couple of years ago when it came out, I wrote an article, and the um, uh, numbers, like 43%, if I remember, of Iowa land is owned by women, and well over half is owned by people who do not actively farm, absentee landlords, <clears throat> retired widows, heirs, etc. And the number that uh, got the most attention was 13% is owned by women over 80. Mm, wow. And I had a fellow stop me on the street and say, uh, I read your article and it applies. said, my, my mother is in a nursing home. She's physically pretty fit, but she can't remember my name. Mm. 
And if Iowa land is seven to ten grand, it's taking an acre a month to keep her, and she's going to outlive the farm. Hmm. And uh, a lot of the initial people that have been contacted by these companies are in that category, and they say, well, you know, there's three years' money, or I could defer payments, and so on. And um, uh, that's what they need. They're, they're cash <clears throat> short. Now, I think George, another point is that the land, the, the value, the, the easement contract is taxable income. Right. And also that easement stays on the land title, and I continue to pay taxes on the easement. So it's using public funds to uh, put in this thing, and I continue to pay public funds to support their uh, their habit. Yeah, we're talking well, about big bucks. Um, yeah. Uh, for example, uh, there's an article by Alan Giebert uh, that appeared on January 23rd on uh, capturing the federal carbon and tax credits as being the reason. Um, and, uh, the, right now it's $31.77 per ton for sequestered CO2 and $20 a ton if it's used in oil recovery. There's yeah. that economic oil recovery right. thing, yeah. which I might mention North Dakota is the number two petroleum site in the United States. Yeah. And uh, Summit is doing test drillings right now, and, yeah. and then they and they the map of the Bakken and they, oil reserves and so on. And they won't uh, commit. There's some similarities, right? And they won't commit. Neither Summit nor Navigator, and Summit even more so, won't commit to not using it for enhanced oil recovery. That says volumes to me right there. But um, hey, I got to run to a, a break here shortly, George. The one more question for you, real quick. Um, again, I was hoping the legislature would take action to trying to put some kind of uh, controls over this potential use of eminent domain. And one legislator, Bobby Kaufman, did offer a bill, or did say he was going to offer a bill that said that 70% of the landowners would have to sign up before the they could use eminent domain to take other land. He backed away from that. My thought is, okay, maybe Democrats finally will have an opportunity to make a statement about, um, about, about whether or not they care for people, you know? Maybe they, maybe they, maybe maybe they'll want to step in and fill the voice as Republicans don't seem to be inclined to do anything. What are your thoughts on that? Well, we have been asked to contact our legislators and uh, so on. And I think another point that should be raised is uh, you know when you got county supervisors, elected officials like this, the uh, county school boards, and so on that are objecting, uh, that should carry some weight with our legislators. Um, also, there's some public lands, well, every road that's just crossing, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the Cedar River, uh, any, you know, rivers, creeks, and so on, uh, railroads, uh, and so on, those will be crossed. Mm -hmm. And uh, that uh, is going to require an awful lot of um, area and so on. And, um, uh, for example, the uh, Charles City Area Development Group, uh, had purchased a development site along the interstate, uh, paid $1.3 million in public funds, and now the pipeline, Summit Pipeline, wants to run through it. Yeah. And there's going to yeah. be some limitations on roads, uh, utilities, parking lots, 
structures, and that is to you know hmm. greatly reduce the appeal yeah. for development. George, uh, thank you uh, so much for taking the time to join us. And again, we'll um, we'll keep people posted up about this. This is going to be an ongoing concern, and uh, I, I really appreciate you uh, all the research you've done. And, and again, talk to your neighbors, talk to your legislators. Uh, that, thanks so much yeah. for. Uh, publicizing this concern. Thank you, George. All right, uh, folks. Um, yeah, I. You know, you, you think about where the big players are in this. Okay, Terry Branson is working for Summit. <laughs> uh, Governor Reynolds is behind this. Bruce Rastetter, uh, one of the biggest Republican donors in the state. Uh, the ethanol industry likes this. The oil industry. I mean, oil and ethanol often compete, but. This on this they're together. There is a lot of big player, uh, big player money uh, behind this, but that doesn't mean it's a done deal. Uh, it's something that people need to speak up about. Um, the the worst thing that someone can do if you live on the route, and again there are two thousand miles of Iowa. I'm not you know I'm not even looking at what's happening in neighboring states. Just in Iowa, two thousand miles of property that this will run through, and um, you know, if 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 you're if you're one of those many many landowners in that uh, in in that target area, don't be too has don't 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 be too quick to sign. Take your time. You know, talk with your neighbors. Uh, I mean, look at look at the possible impacts, not just on climate, but on soil quality, on compaction, on tile, on water. Um, there are so many ways that this could impact you, your neighbors. The greater the greater the greater community and and and, and the world and it's uh, it's not anything you want to rush into and again if if someone at the legislature were to introduce a bill saying that that the company has to get 70 percent of voluntary commitment before it is allowed to use eminent domain I would think that would be very very popular with voters across the political spectrum Voters across the rural-urban divide, if there is such a thing, I would think in particular it would be very well received by landowners, by farmers, um, even even farmers who see the value in increasing ethanol production, uh, and see that there might be that that I mean I'm not even convinced of that, but that that might be what happens with this um, with this proposal. You know, I would think that most people would be very very supportive of that. I know that back during the early days of the Dakota Access Pipeline. When support for piping oil through Iowa was about 50-50, maybe even a little bit higher percentage of people supported it. When you asked about the use of eminent domain to build that pipeline, I think 75% of Iowans were against it. So if you've got that big of a chunk of the population against something, I don't understand why the legislature isn't willing to do something, except that you've got all this political and economic power pushing it forward. And it's not just Republicans. You got you got the Biden administration pushing it, uh, you know, and you've got you've got some of the labor unions pushing it. So there is power from both sides of the political spectrum pushing this forward against the will of the people. And I'm, here's here's my my challenge to Democratic lawmakers, you know, here's an opportunity. Republicans just gave you a gift horse. They decided not to push for any changes to eminent domain to make this more fair 
go for it. I mean, what have you got to lose? And I'm saying this as an independent. I am registered as an independent. But Democrats, you just had a gift course, a gift cor- a gift a gift horse handed to you. Now I know, you know, Hillary Clinton had that same gift horse handed to her when Donald Trump made it clear that he was totally in favor of eminent domain. She did nothing to challenge that. Now Bernie Sanders did, and so did Rand Paul for that matter. But let's see what happens. Um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna send that challenge out to Democratic lawmakers. You know, look. Republicans just gave you a gift horse. Do something with it. Um, We'll see. Hey, this is Ed Fallon. Folks, uh, we've got to take a short break, and we'll be right back with our weekly farm and food conversation. This week, we are talking about bees. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of architecture by synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures, great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. to the program, Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm, and Ellen Bell, owner of Bell Farm near Runnels, Iowa, join me for our farm and food segment to talk about bees. Now remember, you can support this alternative to the right-wing shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor, or if you own a small business or run a nonprofit doing good work, become a sponsor of this program. Thanks to uh, Groovy Goods, that's Des Moines' one-stop hippie shop, where everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Groovy Goods is a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. Learn more at groovy-goods.com or stop in at 23rd and University in Des Moines. Uh, yeah, bees. That, uh, the question, you know, we hear all the time this time of the year is, how do you keep them alive during an Iowa winter? But first, Ellen, again, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. And let's start by asking, when did you start keeping bees and, and what inspired you to do that? So I got started in 2004, and I had a friend at that time who sort of casually mentioned that she was thinking about taking a beginning beekeeping class, and keeping bees had was never something that was on my radar before that, um, but when she mentioned it, I, it kind of sparked some interest in me, and I thought, well, that sounds kind of neat. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll tag along. <laughs> so I, I tagged along with her in the class and then got started with bees shortly after that. 
Wow, Ellen. Um, you and a lot of other people getting into bees, but you've done it in a very big way. Um, sounds like you took a class. So what support system did you find when you just really dove into your beekeeping life? Yeah. So in the state of Iowa, we have the Iowa Honey Producers Association, and that's our state-level organization that kind of brings lots of beekeepers together, both big and small um, beekeepers. And I found that to be a really good support system. So they do a lot of um, different kinds of educational efforts. They have annual meetings. There's a summer field day. All those different kinds of things put together, I think, make a big difference um, to help beekeepers get started and figure out what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we, you know, at Birds and Bees Urban Farm, um, you know, we've got, we uh, obviously keep chickens and bees and grow food, but um, in the bee world, we get a lot of questions about sure. the life cycle and habits of bees. Especially um, this time of year. This time of year, people are amazed. They, they're like, well, don't you need to put a little heater in there or something? <laughs> um, but yeah. let's, let's just talk a little bit about bees in colder climates and how they get through the winter and what they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of times people are amazed to find out that bees don't hibernate in their hives during the winter. They are actually very much awake um, and, and alive and buzzing in there. Um, in a cold climate, anytime that the temperature drops below about 40 degrees, the bees go into what we call a cluster. So essentially they're sort of snuggling together in their <laughs> hive in a, in a ball. So imagine like a basketball sized cluster of bees that are all sort of snuggling together to stay warm. And in that cluster, they actually generate a lot of heat. So that's one of the most incredible things is mm -hmm. the way that they keep themselves warm. They are keeping warm by shivering the muscles in their back. It's the same set of muscles that they use when they're flying. So to activate wow. their wings. That and by like... doing that, they're holding that cluster at a constant temperature, anywhere between 85 and 93 degrees all winter long. That's amazing. That, that's really warm. I mean, we could get cozy in there too. We, yeah, absolutely. We <laughs> so while they're clustering, they're also keeping that queen alive. That's correct. So they always keep the queen at the center of that cluster so that she's protected and obviously warm. And then about midway through the winter, so here in Iowa, it's it's going to be shortly after our winter solstice, that queen is actually going to start laying eggs again on a very small scale. And mm -hmm. so when they kind of begin raising new baby bees, uh, the idea would be that as the older bees are um, kind of phasing out and reaching the end of their life, they're going to have a new and young workforce that's able to come in and kind of take over the, the duties and responsibilities of the hive. So sometime after December 21st, the queen will begin laying eggs. And when will those eggs hatch? Yes, so that's correct. Um, let's see. So the life cycle for a worker bee from the time that the queen lays an egg to the time that that um, adult worker bee emerges from her cell is about 21 days. Mm-hmm. So soon. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So our hives, we expect that at this time of year, they are starting to brood up and we hopefully are going to have some new young bees being born. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and, and, and again, in the upper Midwest, at least spring is not that far away. We heard our first Cardinal sing today. Uh, well, uh, his, his special song. His special song. His song <laughs> indicating that he's ready to become the the male cardinal that he always have dreamt about, dreamt to become, I guess. But uh, that's the January 30th. That's the earliest I've ever heard a cardinal sing. I've heard, I've heard him in mid-February, but never the last day of January. But I wonder is, I mean, so springtime is coming soon enough, even to the northern climates. And uh, 
so it's these, definitely right around the corner. And these uh, these new babies uh, that were born sometime after, or that were late, the eggs that were laid after the solstice, they'll be born pretty soon. Yes, yes, we certainly hope so. We expect to start seeing the population of our hive increase. Does that create problems? Um, you know, when we get later in the spring, so once we get into April and May, as that hive population continues to grow, then the natural tendency for a honeybee colony is to want to try to reproduce itself. And so the way that honeybee colonies reproduce is through a process called swarming. Mm -hmm. And yes, some might say that that, that could be a problem. It kind of depends on how you look at it. Yeah. Well, bees, when they're swarming, are very into what they're doing. They don't really want to go find someone to sting. <laughs> yeah, uh, very so. much so. So, like, um, for the uninitiated or those that, you know, haven't really heard the term swarm or don't know what it means, it's essentially um, you have a ball of bees that are literally hanging, like, from a tree or, you know, a post or branch or whatever. Um, and at the center of that ball of bees, they have the queen, and they're in the process of trying to find a new home. Mm -hmm. So I think, like, to the average layperson, it can look really terrifying you know right. but in reality when bees are in that swarming mode their number one goal is to find a new home and to find it as quickly as possible so there's really not something that you need to be scared of if you see a swarm it's one of those situations where you know call a beekeeper and, and they can yeah. be rescued yeah. and rehomed quite easily so while they're hanging out there in the swarm they've got they've got some bees that are looking through the uh, the real estate section of the newspaper to try to find a new yes home. <laughs> But swarming doesn't mean the whole hive leaves. It's uh, it's kind of nice yeah, because they, they have made correct. a new queen or they're producing a new uh, queen to stay exactly. in the old. And so it's it's the way that, as you said, they want to reproduce the hive. So that's how bees stay vibrant in the population is by swarming. Yeah, that's right. And it really comes back to this concept that we think of a honeybee colony as a super organism, meaning that any one individual bee by herself can't reproduce and can't survive alone. Mm -hmm. They need to have that entire colony, the queen, the workers, and some drones to all mm -hmm. kind of function together as a whole. The, the queen doesn't even feed herself, right? They feed her. Yeah, that's that's pretty much correct. So the queen is is pretty helpless for the most part. She really <laughs> relies on those worker bees to um, feed her and groom her. Mm. They're kind of surrounding her at all times in the colony. Yeah, kind of like uh, kind of like some of the oligarchy in in, in governmental structures around the world. <laughs> <laughs> I, won't, I won't mention any specific countries by name, but yes. Okay. Well, Ellen, you teach classes in beekeeping. You do a great yeah. job. Um, do you see interest in beekeeping growing? And, and uh, we feel that it is. We're wondering if it is. Why do you think that's happening? Yeah, you know, I, I would agree with you. I do think that the interest in beekeeping is growing. Um, I know that the Iowa Honey Producers Association has seen a significant uptick in memberships just in the last five or so years. Um, you know, I think it could be a variety of reasons. I think that anytime that... Um, Anytime that we see that like times are tough or people are concerned maybe about the economy or the environment or just whatever's, you know, going on in our world, obviously we're, you know, coming through a pandemic right now, things like that. I think a lot of times people will turn to, um, you know, gardening, uh, self-sustainable food production, mm -hmm. you know, some of those things that I think a lot of your listeners are very interested in. And so beekeeping definitely fits right in there. And uh, yeah, if they want to get started, you're, you're one of um, several resources in Central Iowa. And again, there are resources all over the country, people doing this. And again, what happens in uh, Iowa is not the same as what might happen in Louisiana 
or yeah, New absolutely. Mexico or other states where they've got uh, different issues, different climatic issues. And different yeah, support systems sure. in their own yeah. climate, so they have uh, beekeepers wherever needed to help. Ellen, mm -hmm. uh, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Folks have been talking with Ellen Bell of Bell Farm near Runnels, Iowa. Uh, thanks to her. Thanks to Kathy Burns for joining me on our farm and food segment. Uh, thanks to our callers and to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks to our local business small partners, uh, our local small business partners, there we go, uh, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, Groovy Goods, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. And thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And remember, your support for this program matters a lot. Go to the Fallon Forum website and check it out. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.